Yeah, talking about bugging devices, didn't MI6 use mice? They did indeed, Tom. Back in the 1990s, they needed to bug the Lisbon apartment of a suspected Russian intelligence officer, and they didn't know how to get the bugging device in. So according to Richard Tomlinson, former MI6 officer, they got three mice and tried to train them. One was called Mickey, one was called Tricky, and one was called Thicky, because Thicky kept on turning around and coming up back up the drainpipe. But they deployed Mickey, and he did the job. <laughs> Carried the microphone to its designed location. Until he came into contact with Boris the Cat. <laughs> well, that might have been a problem. So anyway, so there's always a lot of kit involved and there's always an attempt to outfox the enemy and that's really part of intelligence gathering. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Know your enemies and know yourself. You will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. We have a really juicy episode for you today. We're going to talk about secret intelligence, mostly British and mainly human intelligence known as HUMINT. It is the primary duty of every government to protect the nation and its people. Gauging the threat is critical to this. Understanding the threat, the capability and the intention of your foe allows you to construct countermeasures. However, a senior British civil servant in the 1930s once dismissed foreign intelligence as rubbishy tittle-tattle. Yet it has affected the course of war and influenced world events. Our discussion today will illustrate what we mean by the capability and intention of our foes and the countermeasures that are available to us past and present. We'll dip into the world of James Bond and round off with why the Brits spy and what goes on today. In fiction, it's the world of Fleming and Le Carre. The reality is somewhat more prosaic but nevertheless vital for the success and safety of our country and our allies in a world liberally shot through with people who would do us harm. So, Jamie, shall we start with the nature of information provided by spies? Is it gold or rubbishy tittle-tattle? That's a big question, Tom. And it depends on so many things. I mean, there are a lot of government ministries today that would say, well, sometimes it's rubbishy tittle-tattle. The CX reports, as they're called from MI6, that go round government departments and look at threats and the, the sort of capabilities and intentions of foreign rivals and friends that cover things from economic to industrial 
capability to defense capabilities, you know, it's a huge remit because you're really trying to find out what is going on in the world. And a lot of that information is open source. A lot of that information comes from diplomatic level negotiations and discussions and contacts. But sometimes you need to get under the skin. Sometimes you need to use human intelligence agents around the world. And that's really what we're talking about today. And it can make a huge impact. In the late 1930s, Britain got hold of a Messerschmitt 109, and that's not human intelligence, but it's technical intelligence. And we noticed that in the cockpit of the Messerschmitt BF 109, there was a reclining seat, a slightly reclining seat. And that meant that Luftwaffe pilots could pull more G. And this was very late in the 1930s, and we couldn't redesign the cockpit of the Spitfire or the Hurricane to accommodate that. So the Brits did what they normally do, which is improvise. They put a two-step pedal on the rudder. So in a dogfight, the RAF pilots could raise their feet onto the higher rudder pedal, and it allowed them to pull more G as well. That directly it affected how we fought the Battle of Britain, how we managed to succeed in dogfights against the Luftwaffe. So yes, it can make a huge difference. And what about examples of further afield, say uh, Victor Sorge in uh, Japan? Well, that's a classic case of espionage success for the Soviets because Victor Sorge posed as a German, a Nazi sympathiser. He was very close to the German embassy in Tokyo. He was the one who let Stalin know that the Japanese were not going to attack Russia. That meant that the Soviets, that Stalin, could send most of his forces and really focus his attention on dealing with the Germans in the West without worrying what was going to happen on the arse end of the Soviet Empire in the Far East. And that was directly because of a human intelligence source of Victor Sorge, who was eventually um, captured and shot. But while well, by, he was by, there... By the Japanese. By the Japanese. Yeah. And, and while he was there, he did a huge amount of good for the Soviet Union. He was very valuable. So what about another Soviet agent, the famous Agent Sonia? Yes, Sonia, or Ursula Kaczynski in her Russian name, was a profoundly useful source for the Soviet Union. She acted as a conduit for nuclear scientific research uh, on behalf of people like Klaus Fuchs, and she was basically collating it, compiling it, and sending it to her Soviet contacts. And she did a huge amount of harm to the Western nuclear program and conversely helped the Soviet nuclear program and probably brought forward the moment when the Soviets could test uh, an atomic bomb. And she had a direct influence on that. So you can see that individuals in the right setting, in the right circumstance, can have a huge impact on international affairs and, and world events. Bringing it up to more modern times, there was a lot of talk at the time of the Falklands War about Exocet missiles. Yes, I mean, that's a more modern uh, example of how 
intelligence and active measures can help in a campaign. MI6 had woefully failed, actually, in terms of predicting the invasion of the Falklands by the Argentinian junta. Margaret Thatcher gave them the biggest bollocking of their lives afterwards, saying, why did you let us down? But the fact is, you know, Latin America was not of strategic importance, particularly to the British, so they've never put a lot of money into espionage activities out there. But the MI6 station did not even notice that the Argentine press were hinting at a possible invasion of the Falklands. So they missed out on that. But later on, they redeemed themselves when they mounted an extremely successful uh, front operation by setting up a front company, buying excess exosets that were on the market so that they wouldn't end up in Argentina. And that was a very useful operation because it meant that they could be stopped at source rather than having to mount special forces operations to try and hit airfields in Argentina. And just for, for some of our listeners, the Exocet missile is a, is a, is a land-to-sea missile, is it? It, it can be land-to-sea, but it was an anti-ship missile that could be fired both from uh, Super Etendard aircraft operated by the Argentine Air Force and from Argentine ships. But once the Belgrano was sunk by HMS Conqueror, the nuclear submarine, the, basically the Argentine Navy was not a problem. But the Argentinian Air Force certainly was. You know, it got so bad and it got so dangerous, and we were obviously losing ships to exercise, that B Squadron SAS almost mounted a raid against an Argentine airfield. It would have been a massacre of the SAS because... The Argentinians had a Westinghouse radar there. It would have been impossible to find a single Exocet among all the aircraft parked there. So it would have been a very tricky operation. It's best to get these things at source. MI6 set up this front company, basically soaked up all the Exocets that were on the international market. And had that not worked, there would certainly have been a backup operation to stick limpet trackers on the ships carrying them. And those ships would have been dealt with, either boarded or sunk uh, way out in the Atlantic uh, later on. So they moved quickly. I mean, this is between the islands being invaded. They set up this company and bought these missiles before the war, st- uh, before the um, the invasion started to take the islands back. Yes, sometimes you have to move quickly. I mean, these are the sort of operations that suddenly spring up and you have to move rapidly. And that is why... You know, secret intelligence is is very valuable, um, particularly if you have operators available as well who can actually do the military side or the technical side. And yet, at that very same moment, um, the government were thinking about pretty much scrapping the navy. Well, this is really another point about whether intelligence is a gold strategic asset or whether it's tittle tattle. Ultimately, it boils down to whether a government is capable of acting on the information, analysing it correctly, and whether it's going to stand the test of time as a government. You know, intelligence is simply one aspect of foreign policy, one aspect of survival. As we know from the Soviets during the Cold War, that they had a massive intelligence operation, were mounting influence operations around the world, supporting terrorism, backing regimes that were anti-Western, setting up peace movements, all of these sorts of things. And yet, what happened? The the USSR collapsed. The whole economic model was wrong. That's the point. So it doesn't matter how good your intelligence is, if your regime is collapsing, it's collapsing. 
Also, as you mentioned, the, the British government at the time, you know, it had completely the wrong policy in terms of defence. You know, John Knott, as Defence Secretary, was happily on the verge of scrapping most of the surface fleet of the Royal Navy. Our ice patrol ship had been sold, scrapped. Uh, our aircraft carriers were about to be scrapped. Uh, the Argentinians should have just waited and then they would have just walked into the Falklands and we would have been incapable of doing anything about it. So regardless of intelligence, regardless of what you're getting, what the take is from agents abroad or from signals intelligence, you know, if you don't have the correct government policy, you're in trouble. So it depends on the quality of the analysis and the government of the day. Yes, and you, you look at the United States. If you have a president like Obama, for example, who wasn't going to act in Syria, so what happens? Iran and Russia get involved, didn't act fast enough in Iraq, so Islamic State uh, could swell in its expansion across Iraqi territory. Uh, you know, Obama only got involved once Islamic State took Mosul and was heading for the Kurdish border. Then you look at what he did with Ukraine. Wasn't going to get his hands dirty there. What happens? Putin knows there's weakness, there's a vacuum. So he took the Crimea. Regardless of the intelligence, it's to do with a person in charge. OK, so the threat is really a, a, a sum of capability and the intention, the capability of your enemy to do something and whether or not they intend to do it. Can we talk about capability? Yes, you've mentioned capability and intention. You know, if you have the capability but no intention, you're still a threat because it's a latent threat. You know, we knew that, for example, when Germany was building up its U-boat numbers, the only country that that was really aimed at was Britain. That's the only country that would have been affected as a maritime trading nation uh, if there were a war. So capability can often give a clue to intention. But if there's a threat, if there's an intention by a foreign rival, but they don't have the capability, then that's less of a problem. Yes. I, although I would say that Hitler had put his intention very clearly in his book Mein Kampf. Yes, but there was so much sort of fanatical ranting in it, it was very difficult to pick out what he actually believed and what he didn't and whether others would follow him in that particular path. Yeah, um, and actually there were different uh, versions of it published. In Britain they pub published a sort of uh, a lighter version which, which had a lot of the stuff taken out of it. Yes, and it's interesting that your grandfather, Bomber Harris, has a version and you open it and, and all that you can find is a slip of paper that he's put in it with a large exclamation mark. <laughs> yes. So he obviously thought that he Hitler had the was unabridged, mad. He had the unabridged version. <laughs> he knew what was coming. He was slightly alarmed by it. Right, so we're talking about human intelligence, human, and where does capability fit into that? Well, capability is really part of knowing your enemy. You have to know what they are capable of doing. You have to pick up the gossip, the tittle-tattle, the rumours of what they're capable of doing. You saw in the lead-up to the Second World War, British intelligence desperately scrambling to find out what the German military capabilities were, whether it was naval or whether it was air force. They had people posing as tourists going around Germany in cars with their secretaries, posing as young couples, trying to catch a glimpse of German aircraft on airfields. It was very tricky, and they couldn't really get any real sense of what the Germans were up to. If you go to Nellis Air Force Base in the Nevada desert today, 
there are hangars crammed with foreign military equipment, whether it's Russian or Chinese, and gained by defectors or through purchase or by proxy wars in which we've managed to get hold of Soviet, Russian, Chinese military equipment. You know, you've got to know what's going on on the other side of the fence. So these these are bits of kit that they can muck around with and test and so on? Yes, and you have to know what their radar is capable of. You have to know what their surface-to-air missiles are capable of. And a lot of it is gained through signals intelligence. A lot of it is gained through uh, technical evaluation or spy satellites. But sometimes, just sometimes, it can be done through humans. It can be done through human agents on the ground by bribing, through blackmail, through stealing. You know, that's how we get a lot of that information. In the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, uh, Britain was desperate to find out what was going on because there were a lot of different foreign uh, military technologies being deployed there. The Soviets had sent aircraft, the Germans had sent aircraft with the Condor Legion, the Italians had sent aircraft, and we wanted to know what those aircraft were capable of. In fact, the official history of MI6 shows that all we managed to get hold of were a few bits of bomb fragments, uh, bomb casings. So it just showed that the intelligence picture was very patchy and fragmented at the time. Well, that just goes to show what happens when you send the Bloomsbury set to fight your battles. Well, that, uh, well, well what do they say? They, they live in squares and make love in triangles. <laughs> well, that, well, that is the problem. It was incredibly amateur. But we'll get on to that later. You know, and, and things have obviously been professionalised since then. It had to be because of the Cold War and now that we live in a more fragmented world order, the, the threats have multiplied. So we have to know what's going on. So since the Spanish Civil War, things have got much better. You know, you look at the Afghan campaign. I mentioned proxy wars being a good place to pick up information. Britain's secret intelligence service, MI6, were sending teams in, uh, deniable teams, former special forces guys, who were going in and picking up avionics from Hindi attack helicopters that had crashed, for example, were trying to get information on Soviet armour. So the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was a perfect opportunity, not just to get human intelligence, but to get technical intelligence, to mount influence operations, which we'll talk later on, of putting out feelers to different Mujahideen groups, whether it's Amar Shah Massoud in the Panjshir Valley or Yunus Khalis and different Mujahideen groups, um, mounting counter-operations in order to embarrass the Soviets, bloody their nose, make sure that they don't mount that sort of operation again. So, of course, the blowpipe and stinger missiles that were going to the Mujahideen in order to really bloody the nose of the Soviets and make sure that the pain level was really increased for them. All these operations were basically mounted by Western governments. And long term, you can get unforeseen consequences, such as the appearance of al-Qaeda. But at the time, it was a very successful operation. And we got a lot of kit out. And the Soviets tried to counterattack, sent in Spetsnaz special forces, shot up mule trains that we were using to get supplies out. And this is still all under the heading of capability? This is trying to find out what the capability is. Yeah. 
so often it's trying to find out military capability. You know, in the 1990s, for example, and this was mentioned in that rogue MI6 officer, Richard Tomlinson's book, that in, I think it was 1992, um, we basically got an arms dealer to bribe a Russian manufacturer to provide their latest spec BMP3 armoured personnel carrier um, as part of an order for the United Arab Emirates who got a lower spec uh, armoured personnel carrier. But we managed to bribe a Russian to actually put their latest spec one in, into that batch. So we got our paws on it and could test it. And that was very useful indeed. You also got uh, sort of quasi-official uh, groups like Bricksmiths, the British military mission into East Germany, where we were allowed overtly to spy on Russian and German, East German, military exercises. Once night came and darkness fell, Bricksmiths, the 30 men who were basically part of the sort of spearhead of it, they went off piste. They were backed by a unit that was 200 strong back in Berlin. But the spearhead went out and started spying. And they did everything. They, they would creep up on... Soviet tanks, the latest Soviet tanks with the reactive armor, photograph them, scratch the glassy plates so we could later analyze the steel and the armor that was being used. They would pick up bullets on shooting ranges. They would particularly focus on the latrines because uh, the Soviets, we discovered, uh, didn't have enough bog paper to wipe their asses on. So we were down in the latrines picking up the shit, because quite often you would find that they were using code pages, they were using technical manuals, uh, sheets of paper that were actually extremely useful. So we'd bang them up and send them back to the experts to go through. I, I, I imagine that was the junior bod's job, yes. the least popular person on the team. But sometimes, as I, I, I hate to use the word nugget, but sometimes <laughs> there were absolute nuggets of gold among those. So, yes, where so, there's muck, there's brass. Yes, so that's what you're trying to do. You're just trying to get yeah. under the skin of the enemy. And, and sorry, these Bricksmiths people, they were basically uh, military observers by day, but then at night they kind of, they, they went out, they went rogue. Uh, they went rogue. And, and yeah. one of the devices they had on their cars was a switch that allowed them to throw the switch and they had adaptive headlights on their cars, which would then adapt the headlights. You could change the shape of the headlight, the colour of the headlight. And so you would instantly turn it into a an East German car or a Soviet car, a Larder or a Trabant. So no one would take any notice of them because actually you identify a car by its headlights at night. I think that comes straight from Bond's Aston Martin with the swivelling number plate. Yes, you can see that, that, that all these sort of techniques, these technologies feed into the spying game. And Bricksmith was very useful in, in developing some of those techniques. But it wasn't just the military. There was also sort of economic, industrial and technological information to be gathered. Yes, and, and some of it you can't always get through open sources. I mean, you can get a lot of it through open sources. In fact, you know, it was known that, that Soviet agents, in order to uh, basically produce enough product for their masters back in Moscow, would simply sift through 
uh, overseas military journals, intelligence journals, and pick those things out. I like to think that my articles for Jane's Defence Weekly ended up on a desk somewhere rather than in the bin. Well, I, I hope you wrote a load of rubbish then. <laughs> well, I, I suspect I probably did. <laughs> <laughs> made sure, it up as I'm I went. I'm sure it was pure gold. Made it up as I went along. Just so you're like this you're podcast. to blame. You're to blame. <laughs> yes, I ended the Cold War <laughs> and started it. Kept it going. <laughs> Fair enough. And sometimes, just as we talked about individual agents influencing events, you can see that you know in the run up to the Second World War, you know, we had used an agent in the First World War called TR16. That was his code name. And I think his name was uh, Karl Kruger. He was phenomenal. He was Austrian, hated the Germans. He was incredibly useful getting into dockyards, looking at the ships, understanding the ship construction, getting into shipbuilding facilities, and giving us intelligence on Germany's shipbuilding program. And that was one agent. And most of our knowledge of the German Navy came from that in the... First and Second World War. He was eventually captured and executed. But it just shows that, you know, sometimes you get one source and they become critical to what we know. So we've worked out what the enemy is capable of, but what does he intend to do? That's a far harder thing to determine, Tom, particularly if you're dealing with an autocratic totalitarian regime, because quite often there's only one person at the top and that person is not always rational. If you take someone like Adolf Hitler, how do you determine what his plans are? Those around him probably didn't know. And actually quite often it's not intelligence that informs you what those intentions are, it's instinct. And so it was Winston Churchill who actually knew that he was going to invade Russia. And Churchill always had this faith and belief that he wasn't going to really be successful in invading Britain, and therefore he would eventually turn on Moscow. And that's exactly what happened. But he, you didn't need intelligence for that. So you know, during the Second World War, I think we only had one agent um, in the 1930s really who had any sort of impact, any sort of influence, any sort of connections with the Nazi high command. He provided about 70 to 75% of our intelligence, our human, on what was going on in Germany. He was essentially a Lithuanian journalist, so he could travel around. So a lot of it is very sketchy, a lot of it is fragmented, and quite a lot of the time it's very difficult to know what to believe. And it's quite interesting that Stalin most of the time didn't believe the, what his Soviet agents, the, the British traitors uh, in the British establishment, were telling him because he couldn't believe it was such a golden take of intelligence. He just thought... Well, he thought there might be double agents. He absolutely yeah. thought it might be double agents. This is and Phil, so, Philby and McLean and all that lot. Yes, and Ken Cross and uh, Anthony Blunt. How do you believe? What do you start believing? Because you don't know whether they're being fed what in intelligence partners is called food stuff. How do you know that it isn't being doctored and you're expected to swallow it whole? And that is the problem with any intelligence that you're getting quite apart from the fact that quite often the intelligence you're getting as a leader, if you don't 
believe it. If if it doesn't fit with what you already think, what you already believe, you're just going to discard it anyway. You're just going to dismiss it. And that's always a problem with intelligence. Yeah, I mean, how how important for our political leaders to understand uh, what the intentions of the enemy are. And of course, the great dodgy dossier, Tony Blair. I mean, that's a very good example in modern times, I'd say, of not knowing the true intentions of Saddam and trying to fit the facts to your own views. Yes, this is this is a problem. You have a preconceived notion of what the enemy is about, and if it doesn't fit, you just bin it. And, we're, we're, and we're still paying for the, the consequences of those bad decisions today, both in the troubles in, in Iraq, but also in the trust that many people have in government. Yes, you're always going to get those sort of problems, particularly if there's a political dimension uh, to these things. You know, whether it's 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 the sort of thing that when large decisions, when great decisions are based on faulty intelligence, then you're in trouble. Okay, well we've talked about intention and capability, and that brings us to countermeasures. Influence operations, deception operations, and disruption operations are the three areas. And we want to talk, first of all, about influence operations. How do you go about diverting or undermining the threat? Yes, because as you've just rightly said, Tom, once you've sorted out what the threat is, where it lies, you have to deal with it. And influence operations are useful because you basically want to get both your friends and your enemies to work to operate to move in a direction that would suit you that would favor your foreign policy stance or your security stance and quite often it's just a nudge and you do that with friends and enemies alike so the russians for example have been identified as meddling in the 2016 u.s presidential election if you look at the second world war Britain set up in the Rockefeller Center the British Security Coordination under William Stevenson, a Canadian. And it was hugely successful in trying to counter the isolationist approach of a lot of American politicians or the anti-British stance of people like Joe Kennedy. And so that was hugely important. And so you can see that Influence not only is overt, not just soft power or the Queen visiting a country or diplomatic relations. Quite often there's a covert undercurrent. Quite often there's a a secret intelligence service, an MI6 operation going on as well. And that's important. So would someone like T. Lawrence fit into that category? Yes, because before he started blowing up railway lines and telegraph poles and and helping the Arab revolt, he and people like Gertrude Bell were very much involved in putting together a coalition of anti-Ottoman Arab tribes. So he was instrumental in influence operations and getting the Arabs onto our side, getting them involved in a revolt, getting them funded, armed. If you look at the Gulf states, for example, post-World War II, that again was a classic British influence operation because MI6 were very much in the fore of either shoring up regimes or toppling them and putting pro-British regimes in place, such as Sultan Qaboos in Oman. 
and then sending the SAS out there to fight the Adu, fight communist rebels that were coming across the border from Yemen. So it quite often goes hand in glove with special forces operations, special operations, and there has to be very close coordination. Disruptive operations, paramilitary operations can cut across intelligence gathering operations, and you don't want that to happen. So you can have these influence operations being relatively cheap and and deniable? Incredibly cheap, because quite often you can use uh, proxies to push your influence to make sure that you're pressurizing, you're pressing the, the pressure points, the pain points of your enemy. So, for example, Iran will back Hezbollah and Hamas because they know that that is going to put pressure on the Israelis. The Soviets, for example, spent a lot of time during the Cold War pouring millions, tens of millions of pounds into international operations, influence operations by supporting international peace movements. I mean, any organization that has peace, world, friendship, you kind of know that there's a Soviet uh, methodology there, a Soviet uh, agenda going on there. They were very good at it, very successful, because why not support unilateral disarmament groups in the West when that supports your foreign policy aim? You want the West to disarm while maintaining your nuclear weapons stockpiles. So it it makes good sense for them to do that in the same way that throughout the 60s and 70s, after the creation of the PLO, the Soviet Union were up to their necks in supporting uh, terrorist organizations, terrorist operations around the world. It's no accident that Putin was based in Dresden for several years in the mid to late 1980s, because Dresden was basically one large safe house for the Red Army faction, Bader Meinhof, and Palestinian terrorist groups. Uh, that's where they could be trained, regrouped, rearmed, and sent on their way. And Marcus Wolf, the head of the East German intelligence, who was basically the Kremlin's man, and the KGB directly were very much involved in that. And you look at key terrorist figures during that period, whether it was Abu Nidal or Henri Curiel, who ran a logistic support network. He was a French communist, or Carlos the Jackal, Iliak Ramirez Sanchez. All these people were essentially the Kremlin's men. So they wouldn't really have got very far if they hadn't had sort of the big bucks behind them or the big ruble behind them. It would have made it very difficult yeah. for them to operate. And so They had a safe safe house, effectively. They, they, they had one large safe house and a quartermaster backing them. And so that was the way the Soviets achieved influence. And since then, of course, you see the the black cash and the black operations that the Russians have been running against the West. And uh, there's a lot of Russian money swelling around, and a lot of it gets directed towards uh, extremist groups in Europe, even to this day. They are backing the more extreme political groups because they think it will undermine uh, Western democracy, a Western stance or an anti-Russian stance. So, Again, that suits Russian intelligence well. So everyone's playing this game. Everyone is trying to achieve influence and shift people, shift regimes in favour of their own. Okay, that's influence. Let's get on to deception operations. Yes, deception is an interesting one because 
it's hard to know whether the deception works. What you're trying to do is nudge the enemy towards going in a direction they're probably leaning towards anyway. And that's what a lot of deception operations are about in the Second World War. You take an operation like Operation Mincemeat, where they dumped a body in the sea, uh, a tramp who had eaten rat poison, dressed as a Royal Marine officer, carrying documents, and suggesting that the Allies were going to invade Greece and Sardinia rather than Sicily. There's a lot of argument today whether that was the key thing in pushing the Germans in one direction. Hitler was probably leaning in that direction anyway, but mincemeat certainly helped in persuading, and ultra-decrypts show this, that the Germans fell for it. They swallowed that foodstuff. They believed what they were fed. It was a very useful operation, dreamt up by Admiral Godfrey and his assistant Ian Fleming at Naval Intelligence during the war. And then, of course, there was the Double Cross System, another fantastic operation during the Second World War, actually run by MI5 and obviously with MI6 involvement, in which double agents were feeding deception material, double cross material, to the Germans about where the Allies were going to land uh, in France uh, during the invasion of France. Hitler had always believed anyway that the Allies were going to go for the Pas de Calais area rather than Normandy. But this certainly helped. The double-cross system helped, and it was part of a much larger operation. Isn't it the case that MI5 and Special Branch captured all the German agents in the UK and turned them all? Yes, they did. It was a superb operation. Spying in those days was so amateurish. You were dealing with people who often had personal problems, who had drink problems or gambling problems, or who were totally inept. I mean, quite often, those agents, those Axis agents sent by the Nazis were no better than the two spies in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Do you remember? They were, Good morning. I do remember the spies. I remember they, they, a lot they, about that. Film. Oh, well, they used to wander around in plus fours and, oh, yes, and yes. pretend they were English gentlemen. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Well, but, a bit but, like those Germans in the Hannay story where he's up in Scotland. Do you remember? What oh, was yes, it? The 49 right. Steps, was it? Yeah, 39, oh, 49 Steps, yeah. the 39 Steps. And they have these Germans in rather two new tweeds. Yes, quite often they do stand out, a bit like a British spy. I think his name was Lyle Smythe or Lyle Smith in North Africa, who used to go around in tweeds and plus fours on the basis that if the locals could spot him, they were more likely to come up and, and give him intelligence. <laughs> he was eventually captured but managed to escape. The double-cross system worked fantastically and was part of a wider operation to blind the Germans to where we were heading and suggest that we were going to land in the Pas de Calais area. You know, everyone knows about the double-cross system run from Britain, but fewer know about the over 100 agents, double agents, that we were running on the Iberian Peninsula. You know, one, for example, was a girl who was sleeping with two Abwehr German military intelligence officers in Lisbon, and they asked her to spy for them to get British information uh, on the RAF and uh, what the Brits did was essentially run her anyway and feed absolute nonsense back to the Germans and that was again all part of the wider double cross system and it was a highly successful operation. 
We shouldn't also forget Operation Fortitude, which uh, was the fake army that was created in Kent prior to D-Day to also convince the Germans that we were going to cross over at the narrowest point in the channel. And they had General Patton as the commander of the fake army with sort of rubber tanks that were visible from Luftwaffe reconnaissance aeroplanes and so on. Yes, and, and that was all part of this huge operation. And there was another operation to persuade the Germans that we had an army up in Scotland. And I think that was less successful, but at least the Germans kept up to 400,000 men in Norway. So they didn't redeploy. This was all part of the wider plan. And you go back to mincemeat, there was another side of that, which was getting people like Anders Lassen, who we mentioned in our Special Forces podcast, to attack uh, airfields throughout um, the Mediterranean, you know, in around Greece and the Aegean, in order to convince the Germans that actually we weren't going to attack Sicily. We were actually going to go for a different point on the map. And in more modern times, we had the great fake Star Wars plan. Yes, the Strategic Defence Initiative, they always say, was partly responsible for bankrupting the Soviet Union. It's when the Soviets finally realised there was no way they were going to keep up with American defence technology or American defence spending. And I remember when I was a defence analyst back in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was so much money. They call it the, the bow wave effect. You, know, you put so much money into black programmes, into highly advanced military systems that are going to come down the line later on, you know, five, ten years later. And it's not that difficult when you're spending that sort of money to also put deception material out and say, we're also going to start building giant mirrors in space and directed energy weapons, laser weapons in space. There was no way the Kremlin was going to be able to match that in any sense. So it was a highly successful operation. And they, and they probably got that from a James Bond movie because wasn't it one of the Roger Moore ones where he's sort of tootling around in space with a laser, uh, zapping other satellites or spaceships? Well, I think the, the, the Bond franchise probably got that from the Strategic Defence Initiative idea. And, that, and you know, given that America at the time was developing things like the airborne laser system to shoot down from a Boeing 747 tactical uh, ballistic missiles several hundred kilometers away. It absolutely convinced the Soviets that they were on a losing wicket, and, and, and so it was highly successful. A house of cards collapsed. It certainly did. OK, so the last of our three operations as countermeasures is disruption ops. What are they? Well, they are possibly the most tricky of all because there's a paramilitary dimension, there's an armed dimension. We've talked about influence and we've talked about deception, and those can often be done in a sort of hands-off way. You know, quite often, they're a bit more subtle, a bit more nuanced. With disruption, it can go badly wrong because you're talking about sabotage, subversion, you're talking about assassination on occasion. Those are the things that can blow up in your face. If you take, for example, the death of Patrice Lumumba in the Republic of Congo in 1961, that's a classic disruption operation, and no one's ever quite got to the bottom of it. You know, there's a belief that maybe Britain and America and Belgium were involved in his assassination. You know, he was 
elected prime minister, but he was leaning towards the Soviets. And what does the Belgian Congo have that the West wants that we don't want the Russians to get hold of? Well, it's uranium, the Katanga uranium mines. There were essentially secessionist groups in the country. There were different centers of power and influence in the country. So it was a classic case of the West getting involved. And we in the West had got hold of uranium from the Katanga mines for the Manhattan Project, and we certainly didn't want it falling into Soviet hands or the Soviets to gain influence there post-independence. Lumumba was overthrown, captured, and shot. His tooth is still in existence. The rest of his body was dissolved in acid, uh, probably to get rid of the evidence and him and stop him becoming a martyr. Operation Phoenix, mounted by the Americans in Vietnam, was a classic disruption operation. And that, again, involved the deaths of, well, 20,000-plus um, communists or suspected communists and was an attempt to try and subvert the spread of uh, the Viet Cong, the spread of the influence of the North in South Vietnam. It didn't stop the course of the Vietnam War. It didn't save the day. It involved a lot of things that go into a disruption operation. And it was controversial because there was torture involved, there was murder, there was extortion, there was blackmail. It was, it was, it was a very comprehensive operation run by the CIA. But uh, could it not be said that that, that actually worked against uh, American interests? I mean, it turned a lot of perhaps less sure Vietnamese people against America for the sheer brutality of what they did to tens, hundreds of thousands. It can run counter to a Hearts and Minds campaign. You know, the, the, the Brits had it easier. We've talked about the SAS in uh, what was then Malaya during the Malayan emergency in the 1950s when we were fighting a communist insurgency there from the indigenous Chinese in the country. You know, not only was there a Hearts and Minds operation going on at the time, but, you know, we were basically sabotaging grenades and feeding grenades and doctored bullets into the communist uh, arms caches, which were blowing up and killing a lot of communists. And that worked extremely well and caused a lot of disruption uh, among the insurgents. What the Americans faced in Vietnam was a far tougher prospect. It was on a far greater scale. But if you have an unpopular regime in South Vietnam, what are you to do? You're never going to win the day in the end. It's going to be very difficult to shore up a regime that is collapsing from within. And, I mean, in, in, in full-on wartime, in the Second World War, the, when everyone's at it, uh, disruption operations are going to be part and parcel of everything else. It's going to be much more likely to be approved and people coming up with these plans. Yes, you have far more focus and far more agreement. And you know, if you look at disruption operations mounted by British intelligence during the Second World War, it was on an epic scale. And the Americans did the same with OSS. But in France, for example, Stuart Mingis, the head of SIS, MI6, during the Second World War, he estimated that the British had 25,000 active French agents in France. I think that's probably a gross exaggeration. But we were parachuting in what were called Sussex units, French agents, to spy on the 
Germans and their military movements, their military capabilities, but also to disrupt. They were equipped, a lot of agents across Europe were equipped with what was cutting-edge technology in those days. They were called ascension radios that allowed them to communicate with uh, airborne elements overhead and give them coordinates, give them information that could then be acted on. There was one French agent, for example, who managed to get very close to a V1 rocket launching site. He took the measurements, took photographs. These went back to Britain. The British built uh, a full-scale replica of it, and it allowed Mosquito and Spitfire pilots, Typhoon pilots, to see exactly what they'd look like from the air. And with French agents pinpointing the sites. I think the British destroyed over a hundred V1 rocket launching sites during the Second World War. So disruption is extremely important. Where it goes wrong is when you know special operations cuts across intelligence, and you were always getting that friction between the special operations executive, which was there to sabotage and kill and destroy. And intelligence gathering, because the one thing intelligence agents don't want are German Abwehr or German security forces active in an area looking for them, looking for saboteurs. The other problem with occupied France, as one French agent pointed out, was that in every French village you essentially had at least two uh, informants who were going to inform the Nazis on what was going on if they saw resistance activities or intelligence gathering activities going on. So that was a problem. I um, I have to just briefly come back to the 25,000 agents because it, it, it possibly it isn't true, but even my dear old uncle Peter Hesketh was dropped into France and um, it took him three days to get there because of fog. And when he finally dropped into France, my father had said to him, was he, was he very sort of nervous by the time he actually got to jump out of the aeroplane? He said he wasn't at all because, one, the hole in the aeroplane on the third day was much larger so he could fit through it. And also he'd only just finished his packing. <laughs> could, was he wearing his tweeds and plus fours well, as well? Well, I think he did hit the ground very hard and apparently his butler had finished his packing and he'd packed all his silver hairbrushes as well. So he was overweight. But anyway, he, he wandered around France doing various things. I think he ended... Well, I know he ended up in the, in the Monuments team, which was much more um, his thing. And he did have a very respectable war and was very brave. And that's why I talk about British amateurism. Somehow we get through regardless. Yeah, I know. But he liked the, he liked the pink, pink beret of the paras. And he used to practice his parachute runs by jumping off his mantelpiece until he sprained his ankle. Tom is maroon. Uh, sorry, pink. He thought it was pink, I think. It's the Sultan of Oman's special forces that have a pink berry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that's France. And there, again, you looking for other examples. In Belgium, for example, there was one agent, British agent, a Belgian, who managed to get into a radar site and take sketches, take photographs, get precise technical details, feed them back. And that was extremely useful for jamming purposes because that radar would have picked up British bombers heading to bomb Germany and American bombers, of course. So it was extremely important that we had that sort of information. You go to Holland, you got a massive effort trying to find out particularly where German V2 ballistic rocket launching sites were based. 
they were impossible to find from the air. The Germans were very good at camouflage. And so we relied on resistance groups and our own agents to pinpoint where they were. Quite often, all you could see were vehicle tracks around a sort of copse of trees. And, and so we didn't want to have a lot of collateral damage, a lot of civilian casualties. And so we relied on these reports. And one of the best examples of what can be done with intelligence and the disruptive measures that are taken as a consequence of that intelligence was in mid-March 1945, when six Spitfires and line abreast went and attacked, they were Mark 16s, they were carrying bombs as well, went and attacked the Bartasha mechs, the shell mechs building in The Hague, which apparently housed a lot of V2 rocket technicians. The Spitfires bomb strafed it and set it on fire and probably did a lot of damage to the German ballistic missile launching um, sites as a result. Um, there was also, around the same time, an attack on a, a V2 launch site just as the V2 missile was taking off. And it involved Raymond Baxter and his wingman. And his wingman attacked this V-2 rocket. It's believed to be the first known attack by an aircraft on a ballistic missile in flight. Luckily, it didn't actually explode. And you know what that combination of oxygen, ethanol, hydrogen peroxide and a tonne of explosive could have done to the entire squadron? Yes, more than removed their eyebrows. Yes. I used to love uh, listening to Raymond Baxter on Tomorrow's World, BBC programme. And um, I saw a, an interview he had, he gave with Tommy Sopwith. It was on YouTube. It is on YouTube. Tommy Sopwith, who obviously was um, the founder of the Sopwith uh, company that designed and built the Sopwith Camel in the First World War. And he, was, he lived to 100, so he, this was in the 70s or 80s, this interview. And he has the most wonderful voice, the most understated person, Raymond Baxter, you know, who was an incredibly brave pilot in the Second World War and, and didn't take away from Tommy Sopwith in one little bit. No, uh, well, I love Raymond Baxter as well. I mean, he was a gent and he was understated and just uh, just one of, his, one of his kind of that generation. He was absolutely fantastic. But those operations, all those operations, be they in France or Belgium or Holland or elsewhere, it, it shows the difficulty of coordinating disruption operations and how they can quite often cut across intelligence gathering. And Stuart Mingies, who was head of MI6 during the war, was actually pretty delighted that his D section, the, the sabotage and subversion section of MI6, was actually hived off into the Special Operations Executive because he just didn't want that responsibility. He wanted it in another department. But then, of course, there was always that inter-service, inter-departmental rivalry that you saw you know, throughout, uh, throughout the war in so many parts of government. Yeah, and sometimes competition is good. Yes, ma makes you focus your mind anyway and uh, sharpen your arguments. As I've mentioned Peter Hesketh, I really should uh, mention Roger Hesketh, who was very much involved and part of the Operation Fortitude Deception in Kent, before D-Day, mainly because uh, as children, when we were told this story, it was always told as though poor old, poor old Uncle Roger, he's a, he was a bit sort of hopeless. Um, and he managed to, the only thing he managed to do was lose the plans to D-Day in the war, where, of course, the whole thing was that that was the plan for them to deceive. So at last, I think he, he has been reinstated in his true place. I suppose the inheritors 
the descendants of those disruption operations, be they from the air or from the ground, today are the drone attacks on Taliban and al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. They are classic disruption operations because they're the enemy, you get the intelligence, and then you act swiftly to take them out. And by doing so, the intention, the aim, is to ensure that the hierarchs, the ones who are veterans, the ones who are well-trained, get vaporized. So you're just left with the amateurs and you can clear those up far more easily. And you're disrupting their operations. So that's the kit that's used today. And it's transformed uh, the disruption operations that are available. Well done. You've made it this far. Time for your cup of tea and biscuit. And while you're dunking your digestive, please take a moment to share this podcast with a friend or give us a review. The next section takes a look at Bond, James Bond, the lighter side of the story of the spying game. OK, let's take a little break from reality and move to the fictional world of James Bond and how true it all is. And didn't you at some point wear James Bond's pork pie hat, Jamie? Yes, I did, Tom. Uh, as a child, I used to wander around wearing his hat, thinking I was a natural shoe-in as Sean Connery's understudy because he was going out with an actress, Adrian Corey, who was a friend and neighbour. And so, yep, I used to stroll around in that hat. Uh, I think you were more of a natural a natural study for the white pussycat. <laughs> <laughs> I that, can see you sitting on Blofeld's lap being stroked. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Tom. You, you always rain on my parade. Yeah, afraid so. I, I thought I was a natural killer. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Um, 007, James Bond 007, all this use of O and double O, where does that come from? There's a lot of history in that, Tom, because many of the MI6 officers in Europe during the Second World War, certainly at the Berlin Station and elsewhere, uh, all had double O somewhere in their code numbers. So that was very much around. The prefix O was often used by SOE and MI6, for those who had been through the School of Bloody Mayhem, for those who are actually trained and licensed to liquidate the enemy with any means possible. And so one of the first agents with the prefix O1, in fact, he was W01 because it was supposed to be West Africa O1, was Gus March Phillips, who led the Maid Honor raid, the trawler Maid Honor. 3,000 miles down to West Africa to mount that cutout operation. So he was very much in the mix. And James Bond was essentially a composite character of everyone Fleming had come across at the time. He was assistant to Admiral Godfrey, of, uh, who was the director of naval intelligence. Basically, Bond was always going to be a naval man, a naval commander, with an O somewhere in his code number. So that's really how it came about. And there are many candidates for Bond. I mean, I think that one of the natural candidates was probably earlier was the ace of spies, Sidney Riley, who not only was uh, he an intelligence officer for British intelligence, 
but he was also someone who helped the white Russians, who was very much involved in active measures, and he was eventually trapped and executed by the Bolsheviks in 1925. So it did for him. It did for him. So yeah. he and other intelligence officers like Paul Dukes, who were involved um, basically spying on and trying to undermine Bolshevik Russia, uh, were very much in the mix, I suspect, when Ian Fleming was creating his Bond character. But you, know, you can see aspects of Anders Lassen in there and other raiders from SOE or the SAS that went into that character. For a moment, I thought you were going to mention Sidney Smith. Oh, how could you? <laughs> I'm you're glad no, you're you... number one here. At least I remember his name. I'm glad you mentioned him. Now that I mentioned Sydney, I've got to mention Sydney Smith. All Sydneys are great. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, Sydney Smith. He's come into a few of the podcasts. Sid James. He was good too. <laughs> I bet he was a spy. He's a perfect cover, he wouldn't he? Well, he looked like Ben Gurion. <laughs> Yeah, so you could be a double. Well, there you go. And Fleming, uh, Fleming's brothers were all um, in it as well, weren't they? Yes, Peter Fleming was brought into SOE, and he was actually touted as a possible C, possible head of MI6 after the war. The, the other brother, Richard Fleming, he was brought into them into it as well. So, a lot of them had links to. Uh, the secret world, the intelligence world, both during the war and after it. There was a lot for Ian Fleming to draw on. And they had naval chiefs, basically. That's where where he was commander bond, really, wasn't he, the, rather than a military person? Well, yes, and the first two Cs, the first oh, two God. chiefs of the British Secret Service, first of all, and then Secret Intelligence Services, it was called, uh, from the 1920s onwards. They were naval people. First of all, a captain, Mansfield Cumming, and then Hugh Sinclair, who was a rear admiral. So th that naval tradition uh, lived on. Certainly the tradition of the chief of the Secret Intelligence Service signing himself C uh, was a naval tradition, always in green ink, and that started with Mansfield Cumming, who established was the one-man band of the British Secret Service in 1909. So oh. that has continued to this day. So Okay, so you well you tra slightly trampled ahead on my oh, on sorry, my question sorry, sorry. of who was M. Oh, right. uh, so who was M? He was C. Uh, it's, uh, oh, oh, right. So just, just... Well, no, that's okay. We keep going. Oh, oh, no, right, you, you've right, answered right. the question. I was oh, going right. to say who was M. Okay. He wasn't. He was C. Yes, he, he's always been C, not M. But there were a lot of initials around, a lot of letters being used. In fact, D, as I mentioned earlier, was the head of D section, the sabotage and subversion section, which was hived off to SOE. Colin Gubbins, who started as director of operations and training at the Special Operations Executive, he was known as M. So it, it all started from there. And actually, the, the, the description that Ian Fleming gives of C's office or M's office in his books is very similar to, to what the office of Hugh Sinclair, the C during the 30s. They had famously tacky buildings, didn't they? Oh, the, the Broadway building, 54 Broadway, the first sort of real base for the Secret Intelligence Service. It was pretty grim. Uh, there's a story that uh, at the back of the building where there was a courtyard, there was so little light coming into the rooms, they had to put pieces of wood painted in, with silver paint in order to reflect sunlight into the rooms. And only senior officers uh, who were allowed to have desk lamps. So it was very dingy. It was far more John le Carre than James Bond, actually. So where did Riss Moneypenny sit? 
I think there were two secretaries sitting in an out, outer room. There was a green light system, so you could go in if there was a green light and you could go and see C. His room had a Persian rug and a mother-of-pearl-decorated pistol and things like that and a large desk. And th- those sort of descriptions that you get from the time very much fed into Bond. Yeah, but I bet Miss Moneypenny was was more sort of Hattie Jakes in horn-rimmed glasses than uh, an elegant uh, figure like... Uh, Money penny. Well, as I said, there were two secretaries, apparently. One was very large. I think she was called Miss Pettigrew, and the other was called Miss Jones, and they called themselves Miss all the way through <laughs> their employment there. But actually, that building, the, the C's office, actually had a secret passage all the way to his private apartments in Queen Anne's Gate next door. So th- there was a sort of element of bond there. There was also another secret passage to the passport control office next door. That was always used as a cover for secret intelligence operations around the world. So although it was pretty dingy, there were definitely secret routes, secret corridors of power to the rest of Whitehall and to the rest of the government establishment. Well, we'll put a couple of pictures up on our Instagram account uh, showing you the pictures of these glamorous buildings. Yes, they do improve over time. I mean, Broadway was terrible. Actually, when the Secret Service started back in 1909, Mansfield Cumming ran it, really, from his own apartment, which was, I think, to Whitehall Court. He had built on the roof uh, various sort of a sort of shanty town of huts and rooms and another story and he was sort of hidden somewhere in that labyrinth on the roof and you do get accounts of people going to see him there and being completely in, unable to track him down so he was quite an elusive figure which sort of fits well with the first C really. And so we have C and we have Q which um, to those of you who don't know is, is short for quartermaster who's the person who looks after the stores. It was a composite picture, really, of Q and of Q branch in uh, the the Bond books. And you can see the start of it. Uh, For example, there was Charles Fraser Smith, who ran CT6 at the Ministry of Supply, who supplied a lot of the kit during the war from hundreds of different companies for MI6, for... Special Operations Executive for MI9 that ran the escape network. So he provided the miniature compasses, the escape maps, all those sorts of things. Silenced weapons, all sorts of things like that. And you had Station 12 in Stevenage? You had Station 12 in Stevenage, which is really part of Special Operations Executive. They had all sorts of divisions and branches and bits of kit they got from different sources. I mean, for example, at the Natural History Museum in one of the galleries there, there was a setup where they produced high explosive in the shape of different sorts of turd. So you had that's... camel <laughs> droppings, you had elephant dung, oh, no, that's donkey awful. dung. I, I heard they had, um, this must be where they came up with the exploding lobster, where they were trying to, I heard this story a long time ago, that they were trying to get some explosives across to the French resistance. And what they would do is they would slip them into the lobster pots but nobody had told the person making the lobsters uh, not to paint them red so when they when they came up some sharp-eyed nazi 
was watching these lobsters coming up in the lobster pots ready cooked. <laughs> so they realised they weren't actually the real thing. It can go horribly wrong. But actually <clears throat> elephant dung, it's, it's, it's a fantastic idea because no one's going to even think about it in some of these countries, certainly in places like Burma, or camel dung in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And I like to think I'm one of the few people who's, who stood in the only piece of camel dung for about a 1,000 miles in the Sahara once. Well done. Well, de- um, Desmond Llewellyn was the, the probably the most famous Q in the Bond movies, and he was uh, an actor on the books of a friend of mine who is an actor's agent. And she told me that um, he was the most delightful man, a, a lovely, lovely man. He's no longer with us. Um, and he was completely inept with technology. He couldn't use anything. So he did this wonderful cameo on the Bond films where he was showing the agent his latest toys and he had no clue what he was talking about. And I think he had his lines sort of written on pieces of paper around the place. Dangled on bits of cardboard. <laughs> it's, the way, it, it's, it's the way to do it. Yes, that's how the, we do it, it isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, Q Branch came about after the Second World War when SOE was absorbed back into MI6 and so there were operations going on. You know, because in the sort of febrile post-war environment when we were trying to undermine the Soviet Union. You know, we were sending agents in, for example, in the late 1940s into Albania to try and undermine the regime there and make sure that they weren't sending um, communist infiltrators into Greece. And of course, that went horribly wrong, A, because the Albanians talked too much and told all their clans and families, so it got back to the authorities in Albania, but also who should be in charge of training and deploying those agents, but... Our own friend. Kim Philby, indeed. So, you know, that's why Q Branch was established. It was extremely useful, and some of the kit that they came up with was fantastic. Yeah, I love the sound of the the self-burning safe. Oh, that was fantastic, because they, they needed to come up with a safe that you could destroy the papers uh, very quickly if the enemy were bursting through the door. And I think they got a safe where the paperwork could be destroyed by blowing oxygen or air through it and then igniting it within about 15 seconds. I wonder how many people lent on the button by mistake and incinerated all the you know important documents and probably the sort of petty cash at the same time. Uh, how do you explain that one? But they were coming up with amazing things. Apart from silenced weapons, they were try- trying to come up with things to put tracker dogs off the scent. I mean, during the Second World War, POWs were putting German mustard on their boots to try and throw dogs off the scent and then you know, Q branch were trying aniseed and different sort of acids to try and throw them off as well nothing ever quite succeeded at one stage they thought bear fat might put off dogs but it turned out the dogs absolutely loved it so. it's that really extraordinary um, bit at the beginning of that film the lives of others which is about the stasi in east germany where he's showing how to interrogate a prisoner and what he does, one of the things is with interrogation, is that they ask the same questions again and again and again. And as people get more and more exhausted, the ones who have, have got a story to stick to, um, stick to the story. But the people telling the truth actually change their stories as they go along because they remember details, they forget things. And that's one way of telling. But while they were showing this on the film, they've also got the um, the person being interrogated has to sit on his hands and uh, it's explained that what they've got is a piece of cloth on the 
chair and after the interviews are over they put that bit of cloth in a jar and then if that person escapes and they ever need to track him with a blood hand they've got the scent of the sweat of the person's hands on the rag and they just wave it under the dog's nose and away they go they certainly thought it through they were they were frighteningly good weren't they yes yeah, so you can see why q branch in the 1940s but they were looking at all sorts of things they were looking at knockout drops for putting out guards, they were coming up with silenced weapons, they were coming up with drugged cigarettes, they were coming up with infrared torches, they invented an electronic device that allowed you to open safes more easily by detecting the catches on the combination lock. So they were coming up with all sorts of things and extraction and infiltration methods as well and use of helicopters to get agents in and out. And you can see throughout the Cold War there were always these means extracting agents or extracting intelligence officers became a big priority and you can see that with Grevel Wynn trying to get Oleg Penkovsky out in the 1960s. You can see getting Gordievsky out later on. You know, th- there's always this priority, having backup. I should think having to rely on some of this kit must have been quite terrifying at times because, you know, kit equipment so often goes wrong. Yes, but some of the basic equipment is the best. I mean, one of the things... The simplest tools. The simplest tools. I mean, one of the things that CT6 came up with during the war was simply a pin and a match. and You dropped it in a puddle and it would act as a, in, an improvised compass. Yes. So those sorts of things were very important. In the same way that tobacco tins that were being sent to prisoners in POW camps uh, quite often had wire wrapped around them and that wire was specifically there so it could be turned into an escape ladder. Wow. So there was a lot of kit, there was a lot of thought going into this stuff. Of course the Soviets were always very clever about making things uh, in in an agricultural fashion that was um, very uh, brilliant. I mean there was that, um, the time of the moonshot where uh, the the, um, NASA developed a pen to work in space and cost a million dollars or something. It's a lot of money in those days. And uh, the Russian uh, Russians came up with a much simpler answer. They just took a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it often happens like that. I mean, but they, the Russians put a lot of thought into these things. They gave a present to the ambassador of the United States in the Soviet Union, Avril Harriman, which was the giant seal known as the thing. And it turned out to have a a passive listening device in it. And it was a bugging device, one of the first of its kind. And it was given to him to hang over his desk so the Soviets could listen in to all his conversations. Yeah, talking about bugging devices, didn't MI6 use mice? They did indeed, Tom. Back in the 1990s, they needed to bug the Lisbon apartment of a suspected Russian intelligence officer. And they didn't know how to get the bugging device in. So according to Richard Tomlinson former MI6 officer, they got three mice and tried to train them. One was called Mickey, one was called Tricky, and one was called Thicky, because Thicky kept on turning around and coming up back up the drain pipe. But they deployed Mickey, and he did the job, (laughs) carried the microphone to its designed location. Until he came into contact with Boris the Cat. (laughs) Well, that might have been a problem. So anyway, so there's always a lot of kit involved and there's always an attempt to outfox the enemy and that's really part of intelligence gathering. Okay, that's enough of James Bond. We now have to ask the question, why do the Brits spy? Why are we good at spying? Where did we start spying? 
Well, we do have a history of it, Tom. And, you know, if you have an empire, if you're in a, a maritime nation, if you rely on uh, overseas connections, you, by definition, need to have an intelligence network. You need to know where the threats are. You know, whether you're involved in the scramble for Africa against basically rival European nations or whether you're playing the great game in Afghanistan and India against the Russians. You know, there are all sorts of threats. There are all sorts of things encroaching on your interests. So you need to know and you need to get your friends on side as well. So the Brits have always had foreign intelligence networks and quite a lot of it was done on an ad hoc or personal basis. I mean, if you go back to the Elizabethan era, you, of course, had the great spy master Francis Walsingham, and we talked about him in our Armada podcast. But he was doing what later spy chiefs did in the 30s and 40s and to this day. You know, he was trying to find out the intention and capabilities of the enemy. So you know, he had fishing boats going up and down the Iberian Peninsula looking out for the Spanish Armada, just as later on Mansfield coming before the First World War, employed trawlers in the Baltics to spy on the German high seas fleet to see what they were up to. Um, you know, Mansfield coming had basically ship watchers along the Danish coast between 1910 and 1914 looking for the German Navy, again trying to assess capability and intention. But often it seems these people, it's done on a shoestring, we don't have a large standing army, uh, we, we're, we're sort of using our limited resources in a, in a, a very specific way to compete against uh, large organisations, whether it's the Spanish or the Germans. Greater powers. And, Greater and powers, yeah. what's fascinating is actually, just like Francis Walsingham, Mansfield coming pre-1914 was spending his own money funding the intelligence service, so nothing had changed over several hundred years. Yeah. I mean, Robert Cecil was the exception to that rule, really, wasn't it? Well, he feathered his nest, and, of course, he became Secretary of State and the spy chief uh, during the era of James I, and he was hugely successful and, of course, wrapped up a lot of internal plots against James rather than being involved in foreign ventures. But, you know, he had intelligence networks ranged across Europe and particularly trying to find out threats such as uh, Catholic priests coming to this country. So that's really was what the threat was at the time uh, during that era. It was trying to counter uh, the reach of the Catholic Church and the reach of Catholic monarchs in Europe, such as the King of Spain. How did it work in the Peninsula Wars, you know, in, in the 1800s? Well, that carried on the tradition, really, of of doing things on an ad hoc basis or different departments having their own spy agencies. I mean, right up till 1909, there wasn't an integrated, unified secret service. So during the Peninsula War, of course, when we were fighting Napoleon, who had invaded that region, we were trying to undermine him and counter him. And it wasn't just fighting in a conventional sense. There was always this intelligence undercurrent. So the Duke of Wellington arranged his intelligence officers, his exploring officers, as they were called, his military intelligence teams, to go out and try and organise resistance but get intelligence from locals. And at the same time, there was the more straightforward intelligence gathering organised by the British 
embassy in Lisbon. They were sending out their agents as well. And it became a very unified system, a very efficient system of espionage. You know, that continued in a way. And you see foreign secretaries later on in the mid-19th century, like Lord Palmerston, who ran it like a personal fiefdom. I mean, he was like Francis Walsingham. He was foreign secretary, but he had his spy networks. You know, they discovered, I think, a secret tunnel in his house, which became later the In-N-Out Club in Piccadilly. And there was a tunnel from his bedroom. So it was either ladies of the night or secret agents that he was uh, fraternizing with uh, in the small hours. So, Well, we won't mention his demise, ladies in the night, and his billiard table then. Let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> let's not see what he was potting. Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway. And then, so that's the time of the great game as well, was it the sort of Russian... Uh, a British Empire on a Russian border? Yes, as the British Empire was expanding, it was always going to bump up against uh, different opposition. It's interesting that in the Second World War, post-Second World War, with OSS, uh, you know, there are a lot of OSS officers who are profoundly anti-colonialism, anti-British. Were so they the, the American service, yeah. Yes, so there okay. was that sort of tension. You know, yeah. during the war, everyone's pointing in the same direction, but it's much harder um, post-war on what the post-war agenda is going to be. But, but you, you mentioned that the, it was um, Wellington, you know, had, there were agents in Lisbon and he had his own exploring officers and it all worked very well together. But generally, if you don't have a sort of combined ops combined service you can have problems yes and even if you've got a combined service as i said you know mansfield coming was the the first sort of c the first chief of a an integrated a unified intelligence service and that was 1909 october 1909 and he was a one-man band but that is the start of the first continuously um, existing uh, intelligence operation anywhere in the world. So you can say that MI6 is really the oldest uh, intelligence organization in the world, but, but it has roots deep back in history. It was protected by the Foreign Office from 1909 o o onwards, which allowed it to become a unified service, a professionalized service, and, and stopped it being taken over by other organizations. I mean, post-World War II, uh, Montgomery tried to take it over uh, as part of the war ministry again. You know, he wanted to take that under military control, but the Foreign Office saw him off, and no one liked him anyway, so they ran circles around him. So MI6 sort of survived as an independent service. But f for 40 years, it was essentially a, a collection service for other departments. That's what it did, which is why you got that senior civil service calling its intelligence take uh, rubbishy tittle-tattle, because it sent it unedited, uh, unanalyzed to the end user and allowed them to analyze it. So, yes, there was a lot of tittle-tattle and a lot of rubbish, uh, just as there is today, but it sifted a bit more professionally today. But it was hugely amateurish, in 1909, when Mansfield Cumming was selected to BC, he was just there on his own. 
he went to meet individual agents, whether it was in Paris or Antwerp or Rotterdam or wherever. Well, he, so he ran it out of his out of his flat. He ran it out of his flat. He ran it out of his own pocket. But he was actually very successful. And as it grew, certainly towards the Great War, the time of the Great War in 1914, it started getting more officers. By the middle of the First World War, it had about 60 officers. By the end of the First World War, it had about a 1,000 agents and officers around the world. And the most important um, station, really, was Alexandria. So you could see that... The, the the sort of Egyptian station, the the sort of is that the Suez Canal and all of that around there because we yeah. had strategic interests yeah. and of course you you also had the Arab revolt and the fight against the Ottomans to establish and maintain so you you can see where things were heading but Mansfield coming he was you know he loved technology he had his spy trawlers, he used motor torpedo boats to get spies into Russia. And from that moment onwards, actually, the, the, the focus of British intelligence was really fighting Bolshevism. That's where the threat was seen to lie, in spite of the First World War. I mean, you know, we've talked about the spotters that he put on the Danish coast. And of course, later in the Second World War, the C, the chief of SIS, um, had spotters up the Norwegian coast, you know, well over two dozen, trying to look out for German capital ships during the Second World War. So using spotters, using organisations, you know, employing locals was always something the Brits did. And again, in the move towards the Second World War, we were very lucky to absorb things like the Czech intelligence service and the Poles who came over to work with us because they had much better intelligence on what the German high command was up to. You know, during the Second World War, the Poles had, you know, there's one organization operating out of Switzerland, had 93 agents um, in Germany with some very, very good contacts in the German high command, which we didn't have. And we were still using, by the 1940s, the agents, largely, that we were using in the First World War. You know, there was one organization in the First World War that the Belgians had set up, and there were about 800 members, which was incredibly successful, and it was called uh, Dame Blanche. They were there to basically watch out for German troop movements and train movements, they were all recognised after the First World War, which was probably a mistake because they were probably rounded up and certainly targeted by the Germans in the Second World War. But it shows what can be done with locals and with local knowledge, and, and that's what the Brits became very good at. OK, so we had uh, the first C, Captain Sir Mansfield, coming, and he was from 1909 to 1923. He then died, and... Admiral Sir Hugh Sinclair took over from him from 23 to 39 when he died, did he? Or retired? No, he died. He died as well. Uh, and, and then and, you had the third, then you have um, the third C, which was Major General Sir Stuart Mingis, a lifeguard and cavalryman, um, who took over and was in the chair until 1952. Yes, and if you look at that sort of continuum, there was this incredible amateurism through, the, through that period. It slowly professionalised. It had to professionalise during the Second World War, partly because the Special Operations Executive was running 
its rival organization, of course, to set Europe ablaze. And so they trained their agents. So I think that MI6 started thinking, well, maybe we ought to train ours. But you can't really imagine Graham Greene or Malcolm Muggeridge and types like that actually being trained. I know, it's the, it's the Bloomsbury set back again. Well, yes, and it was all you know, a conversation in whites and things like that. The, Not the, whites, it would be the Garrick, wouldn't it? Well, yes. that as well. Yeah. I mean, Clubland was a key repository for agents yes. and a recruiter. You've got some very high-caliber people, and, and many have commented that it takes a war to actually get professionals in, to get people who think outside the box. MI6 were making some terrible, basic errors uh, right up you know, through the Second World War. There was that famous Fenlow case at the beginning of the Second World War where two British intelligence officers thought they were in touch with German anti-Hitler plotters and they turned up for a meeting and were then captured on the Dutch border and one of them had been carrying a list of his contacts and another had codes in his pocket I mean they made yeah. schoolboy errors it was absolutely ridiculous but but that's the sort of caliber of person and and in the first world war you know, one of the problems was that so many officers, so many high-caliber officers, didn't want to be seen, or, or personally anyway, didn't want to get a cushy job back in an office in London. They felt that their duty was to be at the front. Again, end up getting a white feather. Well, <laughs> that's one of the things. But I, but I, but you, most of the people, most of the people who worked for the, what was called the Secret Service Bureau. Uh, during the First World War, were essentially invalided out of the military. I mean, yeah. a lot of them were sort of crippled or had shell shock or things like that. Yes. Uh, and uh, Winston Churchill, did he sort of favour the SOE over the SIS? Or did he uh, let everybody, anyone who brought him anything good, he was... He, was he loved intelligence matters and he loved special operations. And Stuart Mingies, although he was a cavalry officer and people said, oh, he didn't know anything about intelligence matters, one of the things that happened when he took over, just really at the start of the Second World War, is that he was very good at relations, building relations with the United States. He got on incredibly well, as did his representative, William Stevenson, with the British security coordination in America, who'd set up in the Rockefeller Center in New York. They together built this extraordinary relationship with the Americans, with uh, Wild Bill Donovan, William Donovan, who was very pro-British and established the Office of Strategic Services. And that is really the beginning of the Anglo-American intelligence relationship. It started from there and then developed because of the GCNCS, the Government Code and Cipher School, or Bletchley Park, as it later became. But you say that uh, Stuart Mingies wasn't you know, a natural sort of reconnaissance man. He was more the big picture. But I know the cavalrymen often are seen to be charging into battle, as we talked about in our cavalry podcast. But another role they play is reconnaissance and, you know, small groups going out to find out the enemy's disposition. It's not a huge leap to take that battlefield tactic and place it in a intelligence-gathering context. No, I, I don't think he was a particularly bright man. I don't think he was particularly galvanised, but from all accounts, 
he got on very well with Churchill. Churchill had a habit of getting rid of people he didn't think much of. So he obviously thought quite a lot about Mingy's. One of the things that Mingy's very good at was playing the bureaucratic system, playing the interdepartmental system. And he managed every morning to get a red box to Churchill for his eyes only with some really good tidbits of intelligence. And, and Churchill loved it. And given that Mingy's, as head of the Secret Intelligence Service, was also essentially in charge of signals intelligence, of course, he had all the ultra decrypts that he could pass to Churchill as well. Was he on the list? More than on the list, who? Churchill? No, Mingy's. Because there wasn't a very tight list oh, no, on, no, on no, ultras, no, 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 no. eight people or something. No. Uh, Mingy's was essentially in charge of signals intelligence as well because right. of Bletchley Park. So basically the weaknesses in MI6, the patchiness of its coverage during the Second World War, was filled by signal decrypts, the ultra decrypts, and that helped Mingy's position profoundly and Churchill liked him very much. Oh, actually, you said, of course, that his predecessor, Hugh Sinclair, purchased Bletchley Park. Yes, he was instrumental in setting up Bletchley Park. And, and, and of course, what happened, what Sinclair was very good at was empire building. And he was, again, instrumental in bringing all the different signals intelligence organisations, like Room 40 at uh, the, the Admiralty, under one heading. So you start getting this, this unified, larger system. By the end of the First World War, under Mansfield coming, you had an intelligence organisation that had about 60 headquarters staff and 1,000 agents and officers worldwide. By the end of the Second World War, Secret Intelligence Service had basically grown to around 2,000 intelligence officers. It had expanded massively. Yeah, and that wouldn't include all the people at Bletchley Park. No, it didn't involve Bletchley Park. And then, of course, you had you know, huge numbers of agents in occupied Europe. And you know, they, we had a lot of resources to draw on because you had you know, the Free French, you had the Czechs, you had the Poles, you had a lot of people yeah. in London, a lot of people fighting uh, yeah. for the Allied cause. Yeah, so, I mean, the whole country was involved in one way or another, wasn't it? So Yes, so, so you know, we got a lot of intelligence on a lot of matters. And as we mentioned earlier, the technology was changing. The technology was making it easier for agents in the field to communicate, whether it was dropping those what we call the Sussex units into France, the Ascension radios, and other transmitters that allowed people to keep watch. And just like the First World War, it was really trying to create organisations that could watch the movement of enemy shipping or enemy trains. That was really the important thing in wartime. So would you say, what was the moment when the Secret Intelligence Service was firmly established, safely established? I think by the end of the Second World War, mm. you know, Montgomery made his rather futile attempt to take it over on behalf of the army, and that was never going to work. By then, it was an independent organisation. It was actually training its officers properly. Yes, of course, it had absorbed Soviet agents because of its expansion. You know, there was no proper vetting until halfway through the war. So yeah. it was basically the old boy network. It was people giving their thumbs up and going, he's a good sort of chap. And yeah. they would be 
taken on board. But that sort of slowly changed. It slowly professionalised. And you started getting some very good people involved. You know, and, and, and so you went through the Cold War. So it started professionalising what had happened under coming. He had created these geographical sections, and those sections essentially remain there today. That's how you divide the world. Okay, Jamie, to finish off, let's just talk about British secret intelligence up to today. I've already said, Tom, that British Secret Intelligence Service is the longest continuously existing intelligence organisation in the world. And it's as important today as it was then. It's an independent organisation. It's still essentially under the aegis of the Foreign Office. It's answerable to the Foreign Secretary, whereas MI5 is answerable to the Home Secretary. It's about 2,500 strong in terms of its employees. It has about 500 intelligence branch officers in 50 stations around the world. And that might seem like a small number, but actually in terms of reach, the British Secret Intelligence Service is one of the very few global intelligence organisations uh, still around in the world today that has that sort of reach, has that sort of clout. It's helped enormously by several things. First of all, we're still a maritime global nation. We still have interests around the world. We're helped enormously by the Anglo-American relationship, the fact that not only is secret intelligence so closely linked to the United States, there's also the signals intelligence side, GCHQ and the National Security Agency in America. So... There's that hugely important link there. We also have the Five Eyes links with intelligence organisations in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and, of course, as I said, America. So that gives us global reach. And there's the Commonwealth. So you know, throughout the world, there are going to be allies and friends who help us. We still have outstations and locations around the world that are very useful to our allies, you know, whether it's Diego Garcia for um, American bombers in the Indian Ocean or Cyprus, where we can listen to the signals intelligence coming out of Syria, Lebanon and the Middle East, Ascension Island, for example, and the Atlantic that has various listening organisations based there and global positioning, ground stations for satellites. So these are all incredibly useful. Hong Kong is still useful for basically keeping an eye on China. So the Secret Intelligence Service is very much part of government today. And it goes back to 1909. We have more than just one agent, as we did in the Second World War, having to spy on uh, German intentions, of course. That was Baron de Rob, uh, who gave us intelligence then. You know, the, the, It's not as patchy, the coverage, as it was back in those days. And it's far more professional, and it feeds into government, and it's a, a critical part of uh, government policy and government policy-making. You've, in the past helped Freddie Forsyth with some of the technical details of writing his thrillers. And as a reward, you have appeared in one of his books 
as Colonel Jackson. And uh, thanks for reminding me, Tom. Yeah, I know, Colonel Jackson. Hey, honestly, I'm a hero. And, anyway, and but Freddie Forsyth uh, had links with SIS in his early days as a journalist. There's a story about Pick Botha and the transfer of South Africa to the modern era. Well, it's worth making the point that you know, way back in 1909, when the Secret Service Bureau was formed, you know, we were using travelling businessmen, we were using journalists. Baron de Rock, you know, back in the 1930s, was a journalist, and, and so it gave him access and allowed him to travel. Even today, there are stringers and people who will help uh, British intelligence around the world, and they see it as their duty, and so they you know, provide information, often valuable information. But what people forget is that South Africa used to be a nuclear power. Yes. So Freddie was sent out to South Africa by MI6 in, I think it was 1992, uh, to just coincidentally, um, by sort of sleight of hand, bump into Pick Bota, who was then South African foreign minister, when Pick was on a safari. Freddie ended up sitting around a campfire with him, having a drink late into the night. The conversation slowly edged around to what Freddie wanted to find out on behalf of his uh, MI6 case officer. And Pick Boater turned around and said, and this was really concerning uh, South Africa's six nuclear bombs that Israel had helped South Africa build. Pick turned around to Freddie and went... Tell your people we're getting rid of them. Yes. He said, Freddie, you can go back home and tell your people we're going to destroy the lot. Yeah, and that, that's what happened. And you know, Freddie, having been a Reuters correspondent and then uh, a thriller writer, it was a very useful position from which to occasionally um, help out. And uh, he had been in East Germany and uh, with Reuters and was there. You know, he always said that every time... Uh, that a patrol passed, whether it was Soviet or East German, he'd pop the bonnet and, and tinker around with the engine, looking like a looking like a sort of slightly baffled Englishman, and it got him out of many scrapes. It and I'm sure it's very convincing with Forsyth tinkering with his car. It was probably a British Leyland car, and they were notoriously bad. Yes. I had a Mini Metro, it broke down the whole time. Perfect cover. Don't put the boot into British engineering, Tom. It, it went through a bad patch. <laughs> Jamie, do we have any postscripts? We do, actually. I was going to talk about operations that can go wrong, and I was going to mention the Volkov incident where a Russian defector, um, had uh, a walk-in, had come to the attention of the Secret Intelligence Service. He was last seen being put on a plane on a stretcher covered in bandages because, of course, he had been betrayed by Kim Philby. Uh, the disaster I wanted to talk about was Buster Crab. On behalf of MI6, Buster uh, did a dive beneath the hull of a visiting Soviet cruiser in 1956, and he was sent essentially to study the new propeller system of the cruiser and also to look at its sonar system. So it was a, an overall inspection of Soviet capabilities. Buster went into the water and was never seen again. And 14 months later, uh, a body was discovered in Chichester Harbour and it had no head or hands and it was believed to be Buster. 
apparently his wife didn't recognize him, but given that her husband at that stage didn't have a head or hands and had been in the water for 14 months, I don't think anyone would recognize a spouse. But, you know, Buster was probably the wrong man to send down anyway because he was uh, rather past his prime and a uh, heavy smoker and no one quite knows what happened to him, but he probably died under... Uh, torture and interrogation by his Soviet captors and was then dumped uh, overboard. So a very tragic end. But that's the sort of thing that can happen and the sort of risks that occur on these sort of intelligence-finding operations. A dangerous business. It can be a very dangerous business, as so many agents discovered uh, during the Second World War. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed that. The spooky world of spies is sometimes glamorous, mostly in the movies, often grubby, but never dull or unimportant. Above all else, above health, housing, education, farming, industry, pensions, trade, environment, culture and so on, it is the primary duty of government to protect the people, their people. And the secret intelligence service are in the vanguard of this fight. Thank you, Jamie. I've said too much, Tom. I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> You're just meant to say, thank you, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Well done. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe. It's free to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.